Welcome, everyone. Everybody got a copy of the notes? So how many people here have never been to the CBC website? Have never been to the CBC website? You're the only one? You're the only one. Oh, I can't believe that. You're the only honest one. Okay. So sometimes people ask about, you know, getting back material from our class or other classes. If you go to the CBC website, one of the things you'll see, you'll see this uh, image that comes across here. You'll see other images down here. But this is just a rotating kind of image, and you can click on one of these. So if our, or you can actually click it right here and make it go to the next one and so forth. Um, so uh, if you, so you can click on one of these, for instance, when Philippians comes up, or I can click, click on Philippians. If I go to Philippians, if I just hit that image, uh, doesn't work very well on this. It does work. Okay, good. Do you see how I did that? But let's say, let's say that, let's say we, we finished Philippians. We're no longer in Philippians. It won't be up here on the scroll, going across the scroll. Because what's happening here is the current events are scrolling across here. And there you can see them down here. It's scrolling across. But if you go below here to where it says resources, I think, it says resources there. And it says media. Just say audio or video. Just say audio. Um, uh, okay. So there you go down and you'll see the various series. Most of the ones that Pastor Ken has done recently are some that I have done, you know, whatever. So you can click on any of those. Uh, there's First Corinthians we did, you know, four. So, for instance, if I kick, click on Philippians again, you'll see uh, the various lessons. First week, second week, third week. You can download, you can click the arrow here and listen to the audio online. Or you can download the audio as an MP3 or MP4 or something. Or you can hit, hit this and you'll get the lesson notes. So if you go to last week and hit that, you'll get a PDF of the lesson notes. Yeah. So you can find older things we've gone through, uh, new stuff that'll be whatever's coming up. So you can listen to the audio online, you can download the audio, or you can um, get the notes. All right. We are no quiz today. I didn't have enough material to get enough tricky questions. <laughs> so, you know... I have to wait till next week and uh, get some more tricky stuff. <laughs> so we're looking at uh, this section still, uh, warning against false teachers, and we're going to come back to those false teachers again today, the Judaizers. Remember, the Judaizers were these people that bugged Paul to use a 
a theological expression, that Bud Paul, wherever he went, that is, he would go places, and there were these professing Jewish Christians who believed that the Gentiles still have to keep the law. Now you can see how they get there. It's, this is a very difficult question to answer. The question between the Testaments. There is continuity and there's discontinuity. Continuity and discontinuity. Pastor Ken kind of hinted at that if you heard that little hint this morning about Exodus. You know, we just don't throw out the Old Testament. Because I sent him an article uh, somebody from the web about Andy, Andy Stanley, the pastor down in Atlanta. You know, the, you know he, he's making some very... So Dr. Al Mohler at Southern Seminary basically called him a heretic this week. Because he says we should chuck the Old Testament. Do away with it. This kind of thing, totally. You know, it's a little disturbing. Now we don't. We realize some parts are fulfilled in Christ, the ceremonial, the civil law, and those kind of things. But we just don't chuck the moral law that's there. But that's a little disturbing. What Stanley said. So these Judaizers come along in the first century. Israel's been keeping the law. Jesus comes along. He starts making a change. He says in Mark chapter 7 at one point, he, he says, it's not really what goes into your body that defiles you, it's what comes out. Well, in the Old Testament, it is what goes into you. If you eat a ham sandwich, you're defiled. You know? <laughs> but Jesus is changing the food laws. He says, it's not what goes in. And Mark says, has the comment, by this Jesus said all foods are clean. Well, that's contrary to Old Testament ceremonial law about the food laws and so forth. So these Judaizers had a difficult time, you know, at first. You know, how do you reconcile these? But the problem is they were saying you need to be circumcised and keep the law in order to be justified. Certainly Gentile Christians need to keep observing the law. They need to be circumcised. They need to keep the law. And Paul battles that wherever he goes. And so he gets down to... uh, dealing with the Judaizers as the context for theology. He deals with their error, and then he talks about his own salvation experience, how that he had to look back at his past life, you remember, all those accomplishments, all that he had done, Pharisee, what he had, it was really worthless as far as his standing before God. All those works don't amount to anything. And you can see why this was appealing to a man like Martin Luther in the Reformation who was trying to do the same thing, became an Augustinian monk, studied and worked and did everything he could to merit salvation himself. So, you know, that's why Luther was was, a, was uh, so uh, attracted to Paul and the book of Galatians and, and this kind of theology. And Paul says, that's really worth nothing at all. And then he gives us some practical theology in verses 12... 3.12 through 4.1, which we want to finish up today. And he's dealing with some areas here in uh, 3.12 uh, through 4.1 that uh, trying to apply some of these things to the, Corinth, uh, to the Philippian believers. Um, he says back in verse... 12, you remember if I can get there. I haven't obtained. 
all this. I've not arrived. So remember we said there's probably a, a kind of perfectionist strain in the church at Philippi, possibly. And Paul says, I really haven't attained. My goal, I'm pointed toward Christ. My goal is to please Christ. But I haven't obtained there. I press on. Uh, I forget what's behind. I just count that as nothing. And I press on toward the goal. And what I try to do now is be an obedient Christian. And that's going to bring me spiritual growth. And I want you to. I want you, Philippians, to continue on. And he says finally in verse 16, only let us live up to what we have already attained. So the Christians have basic knowledge of Christianity. You and I have it. Let's live up. Let's try to live up to what we have attained, what we know. And Paul says, we've still got more to learn. And God will help us. God will correct us along the way. Now we see uh, these patterns of behavior, 317 through 19. For Paul, correct thinking must lead to right living. Paul has just urged the Philippians to confirm their behavior, conform their behavior to what they had already known to be true. Now he presses that point again, but especially with reference to some who have not done so. He says in verse 17, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model... Keep your eyes on those who live as we do. So as to reinforce his exhortation, Paul now contrasts two two dramatically opposed patterns of behavior. His own in verse 17, and certain enemies he'll talk about in verses 18 and 19. In other places, the apostle appeals to believers to imitate him. This is a kind of a common thing he does in all his epistles therefore I urge you Corinthians imitate me he says it twice follow my example as I follow the example of Christ Thessalonians for yourselves know how you ought to follow our example Um, but this particular passage carries a special force because of what he's just conceded in verses 12 through 14 Paul asked the Philippians to follow his example not because he has achieved perfection, but because he is struggling in the same race they are. The same race they are running. Remember he talked about running this race. I press on toward the goal. Verse 14. He said back in chapter 1, Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. But notice Paul includes others in this exhortation, in this model. Keep your eyes on those who live as we do. So Paul encourages the Philippians to take note of those who are living in conformity with the high standard that he's laid out in verses 7 through 16. Now certainly this would include people like Timothy, who had been there at the founding of the church. It would certainly include Epaphroditus. He's both, he's commended these two men, you remember, very strongly and so forth. But probably it includes others in the church at Philippi. Last week I mentioned, you know, how do we grow? And this is called the means of sanctification. Sometimes it's called the means of grace. 
there are grace, there are ways we obtain grace from God, our growth, and those are called the means of grace. And I listed the three basic ones. I said there's the Word of God. The Word of God tells us what God wants us to do, what's right, what's proper. He teaches us. There's prayer. We align ourselves with God and what He's thinking, what He wants. We make our request and so forth, seek His will. And then there's the fellowship of God's people, the community of God's people. And uh, that's a very important one because one of the ways that the fellowship of God's people helps us is we see others. We see others who are living the Christian life. The truth is, you know, on young people and other people, peer pressure is tremendous, you know. If young people get into a bad group, you know, you kind of go to the lowest common denominator. One thing that helped me once was I got one time I got in with some people who were very smart. And that helps you because they're making good grades. Well, if you want to be a member of this group, you're going to have to make good grades, you know. And that helps you. That peer pressure, you know, is very helpful. But the same thing is true in our church. If we have people who are living for Christ, being obedient, you know, we see those people. That's a very encouraging thing. You know, it's they're going through trials, they're going through struggles, but they're still remaining faithful. That's a tremendous encouragement and help. And Paul encourages the Philippians to look at their church and find those kinds of models. Verse 18, For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as as enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul spells out why, with the four here, his urgent exhortation of verse 17, exhortations are necessary. His call for the Philippians to imitate him is because many others live as enemies of the cross of Christ. They are the exact opposite of Paul's and others' godly example and are a danger to the church. It's difficult to determine who these people are exactly. But most likely, they are professing Christians. Notice that Paul repeats the verb live from verse 17. These people live as enemies of the cross of Christ, which had been used of those who live as Christians, live as we do. Paul had warned the Philippians about such people before, and now he has to warn them again with tears. These enemies of the cross of Christ were a continual threat to the well-being of the church. Most probably these people, although they are professing believers, are somewhat on the outside of the Philippian congregation, though they probably have significant influence in the church itself. If they were members of the church, Paul would not, doesn't seem like, have included them in his glowing thanksgiving for the church. I thank my God every time I remember you, the church. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. So it seems likely these are kind of professing believers. Uh, they would not seem to be genuine, given that Paul, what Paul says in verse 19, when he talks about their destiny is destruction, and he says they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Now these are going to be the Judaizers again, as we'll see. Verse 19, they're destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame, their mind is set on earthly things. The enemies of the cross of Christ are now described in more detail. They appear to be Judaizers, whom Paul spoke of earlier in 3.2. Remember, watch out for those dogs. 
those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, a reference to circumcision there. Paul particularly views Judaizers as enemies of the cross of Christ. He says in Galatians 5, 11 and 12, Brothers and sisters, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I being persecuted? So, I'm jumping into the argument here. The argument that's going here on in Galatians is, some are saying, you know, Paul believes in... Uh, 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 Paul uh, Paul believes in this circumcision. He thinks Gentiles should be circumcised, and Paul is saying no. <laughs> you know, if I if I if I was if I uh, am preaching circumcision, I wouldn't be being persecuted by these people. You know, I'm not preaching circumcision. In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. He's got very strong language here. Which is, this is to castrate themselves is what he's saying here. So Paul is very strong here. He says their destiny is destruction. The Greek word translated destruction is generally reserved by Paul to describe eternal destruction. So these individuals, and we don't know for sure, but they're probably professing believers like these Judaizers, but they're conducting their lives in a way that they're not persevering. They're not continuing in faith. And so therefore, ultimately, they're going to be... That their lives will ultimate be an ultimate ruin. Their eternal destiny will be damnation. Ultimately, three statements reveal the character and practice of these Judaizers. The phrase "their God is their stomach" is an allusion to Jewish food laws. The Judaizers' scrupulous observance of food laws became their god. Remember, the Judaizers tried to impose these food laws on Gentile believers. Um, in the following phrase, their glory is in their shame, the word shame is likely a reference to nakedness, one's private parts, meaning these parts of the body that are unpresentable, and thus is probably a reference to the circumcision demanded by the Judaizers. Thus, this phrase becomes Paul's way of pouring scorn on the right of circumcision, as we saw in 3.2, watch out for those mutilators of the flesh. It's just shameful when the Judaizers boasted in circumcision as necessary for salvation. Finally, these Judaizers have their minds set on earthly things by their submission to human regulations. So they have their minds set on earthly things because these are just human regulations now. We're not under the Old Testament laws, covenant. We're not, we're not Israel, so we're not under that law in the sense of uh, the, the civil ceremonial regulations of the law. And so uh, this is similar to what Paul says in Colossians 2, 16 through 23. Uh, in the book of Colossians, Paul is also dealing with Judaizers, a kind of a little mix of Judaizers and Greek philosophy. But he's, he says something similar to this expression uh, when he says here that uh, he says they, their mindset is on earthly things. These are not heavenly things, now they're earthly. Therefore, he tells the Colossians, do not anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon, celebration, or a Sabbath day. That's Judaism. So these are Judaizers who are trying to get the Colossians to go along with Jewish practices as a requirement. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. They pointed to Christ. Their reality, however, is found in Christ. He fulfilled the law. 
He's the end of the law, the culmination of the law. Since you die with Christ to the elemental forces of the world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? And then this is in quotation marks. So they have rules. Religions have rules to be saved. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Now, we've got rules too, but they're not rules to be justified, to be saved. You know, the Bible has rules. It has things we must do. But the point is, if you do these things, do not taste, do not touch, don't handle these foods, you know. That's what he's up, that's what he's arguing against here. These rules which have to do with things that are destined to perish with use are based on merely human commands and teaching. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh element of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Um, so when he says, since you die with Christ to the elemental spiritual force of the world, why as though you still belong to the world do you submit to its rules? So these Colossians before Paul argues here were in a similar situation to what the Judaizers were putting on them. In other words, their pagan religion had rules. Do this if you want to have the salvation. Don't taste, don't touch. You know, they had rules. So in that sense, the pagan religions are like Judaism being opposed now. It's the same principle of work salvation being imposed. They were in a work salvation before. This imposition of Judaism is now a works religion now. It's not faith, trusting in Christ alone for salvation. The Judaizers are concerned with the values which pass away and have no eternal significance. As Paul tells the Corinthians, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. So in this dispensation, this age, circumcision is no longer a command of God because we're not Israel. We're not a covenant nation. We're not the nation of Israel. We're a covenant. We're a community of believers but we're not under that law, and so we have to keep the commands that God, the moral law that God has given us, but not the civil ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. Though those, all those laws teach us, they inform us, just like Pastor Ken mentioned about the parapet. So every law is moral. You'll often hear this expression. You can't legislate morality. Now, that's the dumbest statement ever made. You can't legislate morality. That's all laws do. Every law, basically, is legislating morality. When they have a 25-mile-an-hour speed limit down the street down here, that's morality because it's safety. It's protecting human life. They don't want you going 95 miles an hour. The basis, it's a moral basis. Every law has some moral basis. So we legislate morality all the time. That's what laws do. And so... In the Old Testament, though we're not technically under those ceremonial and civil legislation, uh, we still can find the moral principle there. And the moral principle of that parapet is safety. Human life is important. You should protect it and so forth. Well, let's look on. Heavenly citizenship, the final section here, 320 through 41. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The Philippians need to join together in following Paul's example, verse 17, rather than that of the Judaizers, who are enemies of the cross of Christ, verse 18, and have their minds set on earthly things, verse 19. An important reason for following Paul's example rather than minding earthly things is the fact that our citizenship is in heaven. For a citizen in heaven, earthly things must at best be secondary. Paul had introduced the idea of citizenship, remember back in 127, that verse, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, where the verb, conduct yourselves, has the idea of conducting yourself as a good citizen in a state. It is the verb of the noun citizenship in verse 20. Because Philippi was a Roman colony, the Philippians would find this an appropriate illustration. For in a political sense, they knew what it was to be citizens of a far-off city. We're citizens of a far-off city, heaven. Even though most of them had probably never been to Rome. And they were proud of that status. Remember when Paul was there in Philippi, he got himself arrested. They brought him to the magistrates and they said, These are Jews. They're throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept. So Philippi, Philippi prided itself in being a Roman colony. These were citizens of Rome. And uh, Paul says, our citizenship, just like you're familiar with Romans, is ultimately really in heaven. However, contrary to what we might have expected, Paul does not draw a direct connection between the fact that we belong to a heavenly commonwealth and the obligations that are therefore binding upon us as citizens of that commonwealth. Now, you could do that. You could say, because we're citizens of heaven, we ought to act this way and do this, but that's not his point here. Rather, Paul proceeds to build his case on the character of the hope that such a commonwealth provides. That is... Because we are citizens of heaven, heaven should be the focus of our hopes and dreams. Our eyes should be heavenward, so to speak, anticipating the coming of our Savior, who is not a mere Roman emperor, but the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember he says, await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that word Savior would be well-known to the Romans, the Savior, the Roman Emperor, was called a Savior, as well as Lord. Lord and Savior was a title. So what Paul says, we're waiting for our Savior, not the Roman Emperor, because we're citizens of heaven. As much as we eagerly await the return of our Savior, we will be protected from earthly, sensual enticements. And this this you know, it's found in other places in the New Testament about the fact that we have this hope in heaven that should sort of focus our attention that way. We find in other passages, you remember, First John says, all who have this hope in him of his appearing purify themselves as he is pure. Second Peter 3.14 So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this that is his coming, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Verse 21. Who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. 
Christ at his return will transform believers' mortal bodies so they will be con- they will conform to the character of his resurrection body. This present body is described as a lowly body. The term lowly suggests the idea of humiliation and thus calls attention to the present body's weakness and susceptibility to persecution, disease, sinful appetites, and death. At Christ's coming, however, our earthly transient appearance will be changed, whether by resurrection of those already dead or by the rapture of those living. Believers will be transformed and will receive glorified bodies that will more adequately display their essential character as children of God and sharers in the divine life in Christ. This will be accomplished by the same power that will ultimately bring all things in the universe under the authority of Christ. Remember he talks about to bring everything under his control. So this passage reminds us, you know, contrary to appearances, contrary to what we see when we look around, around us in our world and so forth, God is in control. Um, he's in control. Contrary to our appearance, our salvation is not just for today, but forever. And Christ is coming again. And that coming, at that coming, we will inherit the final glory that belongs to Christ alone, Paul says here. It means the final subjection of all powers to himself. It's the power that enables him ultimately to bring everything under his control. That's the power we're talking about here. It means the final subjection of of the powers that are persecuting the Philippians. Those responsible for their problems and difficulties, Paul says. I mean, it seems like, you know, that you're in a bad shape. Seems like you're being persecuted. I'm in prison. Doesn't look good. But that's all going to change. Because he's going to bring everything under his control. So along with Paul, you and I should not merely wait passively for the end, but as Paul said in verse 14, eagerly press toward the goal. In spite of the difficulties and problems, we should be pressing toward that goal. 4.1 Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, Dear friends, the therefore indicates that Paul now intends to apply the preceding argument to the Philippians' specific situation. The phrase, in this way, refers back to the previous verses, probably the whole of 3, 1 through 21, including especially the Philippians' imitation of Paul. In light of the wonderful hope to which the Philippians can look forward, the Apostle concludes with an exhortation for them to persevere. Stand firm in the Lord. The same kind of exhortation with which the letter began in 127. Remember he said there, whatever happens, conduct yourselves, there's that word for conduct yourselves as a citizen, in a manner worthy of the gospel. Then, whether I come and see you, or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. The reference to the Philippians as my brothers and sisters 
You whom I love and long for shows the strong feelings of intimacy the apostle felt toward his Philippian friends. Their description as Paul's joy and crown reminds us of his earlier words to another Macedonian church, the church at Thessalonica. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? So Paul says, you know, when I think about you and the fact that God has saved you and he's working in your lives, that causes me to rejoice. But, you know, as I receive these favorable reports, I'm getting good reports from Epaphroditus about you. That's good. And uh, so they were his present joy, but they would also, as they persevere, be his joy in heaven when... uh, when he, they would be sort of his crown, his reward, when Christ comes to reward his servants. Well, let's move then and start the section, Final Concerns, 4, 2 through 23. He begins here with an exhortation in verses 2 through 9. This exhortation that begins verse 2 The exhortations appear to indicate that Paul has concluded the body of his letter. Paul commonly ends his letter with a series of exhortations. These exhortations include verses 2 through 9, then follows a word of thanks in 10 through 20, and and finally the closing in verses 21 through 23. So first the exhortation, and this exhortation is first a final call for unity. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syndicate to be of the same mind of the Lord. Uh, we have seen a number of calls for unity by Paul throughout this letter. You know, we, we remember we said, with kind of the theme of this is uh, unity for the gospel, unity for the sake of the gospel, uh, unified so that we can be effective and in the gospel ministry. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. There it is. So he's talking about, whenever I come or not, we just read that you stand for striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one spirit and of one mind. Well, now he comes back to that with when he says, I plead with Euodia and Syndicate to be of the same mind. And here in verse 2, the expression, be of the same mind, is practically identical in Greek to the words in 2.2, being like-minded. However, we are probably not prepared for the directness of his language in verses 2 and 3. Apparently, the problem of unity at Philippi was fairly serious since Paul mentioned two ladies by name. Euodia and Syndicate were clearly two females in the church since they are two well-attested feminine names in Greek and they're called women in verse 3. Paul's repetition of the word plead indicates that this is at least a mild rebuke, especially so when we remember that this letter would have been read out loud to the assembled church. The precise nature of their quarrel is unclear, but how would you like to be in church (laughs) and the pastor reads out your name like this it wouldn't be pleasant would it Paul 
doesn't really take sides in this dispute. You know, he doesn't say one was right, one was wrong. So it doesn't look like we're looking we're looking at a doctrinal matter. You know, if it was a doctrinal matter, he would take sides and correct this and so forth. But like most disputes in churches, they're not usually doctrinal. Sometimes they are, but most time they're personal, aren't they? They're personal problems of people getting along with each other. Uh, probably this is an inability of two prominent ladies in the church to work together. Now, according to verse 3, we'll read, it says they continued, they contended at Paul's side in the cause of the gospel. So they had been very strong, very faithful in uh, working with Paul in the gospel ministry. But for some reason, perhaps they they just couldn't see eye to eye. They'd come to some disagreement, something has come between them. And so whatever the issue is, they're prominent ladies in the church, and they're a threat to the unity of the whole church. Because everybody knows them, everybody knows about this. So this is a real problem. So because it's a big thing for the whole church, you know, Paul dresses it directly, and their names are actually read out here publicly in the church. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. At this point, Paul seeks to enlist the aid of a third party, my true companion, whom he challenges to bring these women together to help them reconcile their differences. It's no longer possible to determine with any certainty just whom Paul is referring to. But we can probably assume he was a co-worker with Paul at Philippi. The title, True Companion, suggests someone who was an intimate friend of Paul. Timothy has been suggested as this true companion, though we noted earlier that Paul was not planning to send him to Philippi at the moment, so he would not have been there when the letter was read. Remember, he says in chapter 2, I'm not going to send Timothy now. I'm going to send Epaphroditus with a letter, and I'll send Timothy later on when I find out what my situation is. So Timothy doesn't seem to be a possibility here. Um, This man, the noun in Greek is masculine, was clearly well known to the Philippians. And as one commentator probably says, probably a person of tact as well as influence. Epaphroditus might fit the bill as he was coming home bringing the Philippian letter. But since Paul had mentioned his name earlier in the letter, why would he not do so now? Well, maybe he didn't. Could be him. Many people think a more likely candidate is Luke. Now, we're just speculating here, but a lot of people think Luke. (coughs) Luke remained behind at Philippi after the founding of the church in Acts 16 when Paul, Silas, and Timothy went on to Thessalonica. Now, if you remember the situation there in Acts 16, Paul gets the Macedonian call in Troas and goes over to Philippi, remember? And he goes down by the river and so forth. Lydia is saved. But... There's four people in that group. There's Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke. Well, when they go on, and that's where we have those we passages. So 
They get the Macedonian call, and the writer of Acts says, we decided that we should go over and help these people. You know, and we came to Philippi, and we... And then all of a sudden, when he goes to Thessalonica, it's not, it's they. So it looks like Luke stays behind in Philippi. Luke remained in Philippi for five or six years until he rejoined Paul toward the end of his third missionary journey. So that's a long time because Luke is there really at the founding of the church at Philippi. Paul goes on to Thessalonica. He goes on to Berea. He goes on to Athens. He goes on to Corinth. He goes over to Ephesus. He goes back to Jerusalem. He starts his third missionary. He goes back to Antioch. Starts his third missionary journey. He goes to uh, Ephesus. He spends three years. He goes back to Macedonia. He goes back to Corinth. (laughs) Then he goes back to Macedonia and he picks up Luke. So he's there a long time. You know, five, six years. Luke was with Paul in the first part of his imprisonment in Rome since he is mentioned by Paul in Colossians 4.14 where he's called our dear friend and Philemon 24. So the problem for us with Luke is that we know in a couple of other of the prison epistles, Luke is with Paul. Now if you want me way back at the beginning when we talked about the order of the prison epistles, it looks like Colossians and Philemon and Ephesians were written at the first part of the imprisonment. Philippians was written toward the end because Paul thinks his trial is coming up. So if Luke is the guy, then he was there at the beginning, but Paul has sent him back to Philippi. That's possible, so it might be Luke. But again, we're not sure. But if he's the true companion, he'd had, he would have had to have left Rome for Philippi by the time he writes this at the latter part of his imprisonment. The fact that Yodia and Syndike had once labored with Paul means they should be able to do so again. Perhaps they had been among the original group of converts at Philippi, for women had been Paul's first hearers there. Remember Acts chapter 16? On the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. The the Jewish law, the Jewish Mishnah, the Talmud, said that a synagogue should be established when there are ten families, ten male families. There's no synagogue in Philippi, so they're meeting out by the river. This was a common thing. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those women was Lydia. And she, the Lord opened her heart. She was saying, but there were other women there too. You know, and these maybe maybe these women were very early uh, uh, members of the church. Their Christian labors had been in conjunction with Clement and others of Paul's co-workers. This Clement is not otherwise known to us with certainty, although the names of the rest of Paul's co-workers are not named. They belong with with the three who are mentioned have their names written in the book of life. This is a reference to the register in heaven of those who are saved. The Bible often speaks about the book of life, that when you're saved, our names are in the book of life. I saw the dead and great, dead, great and small. This is the great white throne member. Standing before the throne, the books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what, to what that had been done as recorded in the books. 
Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So this is a common expression for a roll of those who are born again. Finally, joy and anxiety. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. After his previous exhortation for unity and from his attempt to correct a case of disunity, Paul proceeds to exhort the Philippians to maintain certain positive Christian virtues. First, believers are to rejoice in the Lord always. This is an exact repetition of the words in 3.1 with the addition of always. But when Paul, but then Paul immediately repeats the exhortation, I will say it again, rejoice. This repetition of the command to rejoice may imply that Paul anticipated some natural objection. How can we rejoice in view of our difficulties? So he repeats the command. Because in all the ups and downs of the Christian life, whether in attacks from false teachers, personality clashes among believers, persecution from the world, or the threat of imminent death, all of which Paul himself was experiencing at this very time, the Christian is to maintain a spirit of joy in the Lord. None of these things should be allowed to eclipse our joy. Joy is really a mark of genuine faith. You and I are clearly not immune to the ups and downs, to the difficulties, to the sufferings. Uh, you know, and we shouldn't be insensitive to those things in other people's lives too. You know, so there's a lot that can affect us in a very negative way. But we count. We should count the will of God and our highest joy. We should count the will of God our highest joy. We should count, you know, pursuing our Christian life to the glory of God as our greatest joy in life. And so, therefore, we should be capable of having some sort of inner peace and joy in every circumstance. I say here, clearly Paul does not have in view such superficial happiness as manifests itself only when things go well. No, it is a rejoicing that can be had always because it depends not on changing circumstances but on the one who does not change. We are to rejoice in the Lord. So what Paul is talking about here, and I know we're all aware of this, this joy that he talks about in his epistles is not something that should fluctuate with our circumstances. It shouldn't change all the time when things are good or things are bad. Later he'll talk about, I know how to abound, I know how to be abased, you know, I know how to deal with all the circumstances. So this joy is really based upon our relationship with the Lord. And that's an abiding, it's a deep spiritual quality of life that we have or should have. As I say, there are good times, there are bad times, there are times when we are happy. And there are times when we lament, when we're sad. But in spite of these ups and downs of everyday life, Paul is telling us that Christians should possess a sense of Christian joy in the Lord. We can rejoice because we find satisfaction in the Lord. 
We trust in the fact that He loves us. That He's working in our lives to bring about what is best for us. Verse 5. Let your gentleness, gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. The exhortation to let your gentleness be evident to all reinforces Paul's call for believers to rejoice. The word gentleness has the idea of gentle forbearance. It is the idea of not insisting on every right of law or custom, yielding, gentle, kind, courteous, and tolerant. Paul is recalling his words in 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. So this Christian joy, as we said, is not primarily inward looking. We learn to rejoice not so much by concentrating on what we need, our need for happiness, but on the needs of others and how the gospel can transform other people's lives. Paul reinforces his command with the simple but powerful comment, the Lord is near. Probably Paul wants to remind us that it is our Lord who exemplifies the grace of a gentle forbearance. And we should remember that this Lord who exemplifies these qualities that we should emulate is near. That is, He could return at any time. So as we reflect on that possibility, He's saying, that should cause us to follow His example of gentle forbearance. He says, Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. (coughs) The appeal to our Lord's return in verse 5 also becomes the basis for exhortation in verses 6 and 7. It begins with a prohibition. Do not be anxious about anything. (coughs) Then on the positive side, Paul commands the Philippians to present their request to God. Just as the command not to worry is all-embracing, do not be anxious about anything, so the positive side is likewise all-encompassing. Our requests are to be include every situation, all the details and circumstances of life. Paul adds instructions on how the positive command is to be accomplished by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Now, Paul uses a, a number of different words here for prayer. He uses prayer, petition, thanksgiving, present... He's piling up these various words for prayer in order to emphasize the importance of this in our lives. And if you're like me, the problem is when something is happening, is going wrong, this is the first thing we do, but it's often the last thing, you know, the last thing. And sometimes it's all you can do. Somebody was just talking to me about an issue this morning with a person they were trying to deal with, you know, and talk to them for three hours, you know. Well, we have to pray <laughs> because, you know, sometimes you can talk and talk and talk and talk and God's going to have to work. You know, God's going to have to do something in their lives. You just can't, you know, you're just not going to be able to reason them out of this nonsense. You're going to have to trust God, talk to them, but wait upon God and trust them and pray about it. I say we should compare the apostles' command not to worry with our Lord's similar instructions in 625. Do not worry about your life. Remember, that's the famous passage here. 
where Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Why not worry? Well, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your Father, Heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Why do you worry about clothes? See how the, the flowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin, yet I tell you that even Solomon in all of his splendor was not dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So don't worry, saying, what should we eat, what should we drink, or what should we wear? The pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows what you need, knows that you need them. So a couple of things. God knows what we need, you know. He knows what we need, and he's sovereign. He takes care of the birds, the hairs of our heads are numbered, and so God is sovereign. That's what Paul is suggesting here. God is in control, Jesus is in control, We should pray and not worry. Verse 7. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If the Philippians heed Paul's exhortation in verse 6 to let their request be made known to God, the certain result is that whether their petitions are granted or not, his peace, which is beyond what they can imagine, will stand guard over their hearts and minds. So the opposite of anxiety, you know, indeed its relief, is the peace that only God, in answer to prayer, bestows upon people. And if you've been a Christian long enough, I'm sure you've experienced this, where you're you're frazzled, you're upset, you know, and after you pray and trust God, maybe nothing happens immediately, but you sense, okay, uh, trust, I'm trusting God. Prayer is not so much about <clears throat> getting our will done in heaven, it's getting God's will done in us. And sometimes we pray and it causes us to reflect upon God's sovereignty, who He is. We can trust Him, so it's very helpful and needful for us. Paul characterizes peace with the words, God's peace with the words, which tr- transcends all understanding. These words are similar to the Apostle's statement in Ephesians 3.20, God can do beyond all things that we ask or even think. So even so, even though all of us have reasons, most all of us, I assume, have reasons to worry, legitimate reasons to worry, we have to remember that God's peace even transcends our own intellectual powers. We often experience God's peace in unexpected ways, in circumstances where sometimes it seems impossible that we could experience it. And Paul was experiencing. Here he's in prison. This seems like the end. And yet, he's experiencing the peace of God. And the Philippians could as well. In the midst of their troubles, in the midst of their quarrels, in the midst of their persecutions and difficulties. So this peace comes through prayer because in prayer we're casting ourselves on God. We're trusting and relying in Him. And that gives us this peace of God. Let's pray. What we do, let me just mention, so next week we will uh, finish up Philippians, Lord willing. And then I'm going to start another series because uh, eventually we're going to be back in the auditorium with Pastor Ken. 
He's starting a series in the fall, but it's the last week in September that he's starting. He's announcing the Bolton, a new series he's starting. So uh, we've got a few more weeks. He's going to be continuing to doing how to get the most out of your Bible in the auditorium. So for about five weeks, I'm going to be, I'll be doing another series on the life of Paul. So we'll start that in about two weeks, Lord willing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us today. Help us, Father, to uh, be able to reflect on these truths and to be obedient to what we read and give us an ability to trust you in a greater way. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.